I've got a riddle for you. Oh boy, go for it. What's a four-letter word for the elephant in the room when it comes to creating a culture of inclusion? Hmm. Can you give me a hint? Sure. The word is a topic I discussed with one of our interviewees, Mary Frances Winters, a few episodes ago. Oh, is it race? Bingo, you win. Where did that bell come from? Shh, don't worry about it. I'm Ashley Marchand Orm. And I'm Erin Essenmacher, and you're listening to Future Fluency, the podcast where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation, culture, and their impact on business. Brought to you by the National Association of Corporate Directors. And today we're continuing our short series of in-depth interviews we've had with experts and thought leaders on some fascinating topics. This time, we're jumping into the deep end to talk about race. Why? Because we're brave, and it's an important topic. It is, and we are, and you got some great insights from your conversation with Mary Frances Winters. She's the founder and CEO of The Winters Group, a 35-year-old diversity and inclusion consulting firm. She also wrote a book called We Can't Talk About That at Work, How to Talk About Race, Religion, Politics, and Other Polarizing Topics. Sounds right up our alley. Let's talk about why it's difficult to discuss race at work. I think we've been taught not to. Over the years, um, I think it's a, you know, it's a difficult subject. In the United States, we have a very difficult history around race, and so it's not easy to, to talk about. And I think we're sort of thinking, you know, well, everybody's the same now, and there's really no need to talk about race. That answer is interesting because it makes me want to take a step back and, and think about institutional discrimination and racism in the U.S. And obviously that was prevalent, has been prevalent for hundreds of years at this point. So how does that background, that institutional discrimination affect conversations about race at work? Yeah, I think that um, there are some people who want to just forget it. So they don't want to talk about it because the history is so disturbing. And when they think about that history of, you know, legalized discrimination, uh, it uh, brings back, you know, bad memories. And so people are ashamed, or they might feel guilty if they had um, ancestors or their grandparents, perhaps were racist. And, you know, they don't feel that they are, but and so they don't really want to talk about it. It's better to just bury that ugly part of our history and not bring it up anymore. Because presumably, we are now in uh an era where we are at least race neutral. I mean, that's what some would like to believe, even though we see evidence that that is not the case. But it still is very, very difficult uh, to talk about and to admit. You mentioned the term legalized discrimination. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Well, prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, in employment and other areas, there were no protections uh, for individuals um, who were not white. Uh, So if an employer said, I'm not hiring you because you're black. That was that was legal. And um, then, of course, in the South, there were the Jim Crow laws, the colored only, you know, uh, laws relative to where you could eat, uh, drinking at the water fountains. And so all of those kinds of things are what I'm talking about when I speak to legalized discrimination. And why would people today um, need to or, or maybe want to talk about race in the workplace? Well, because race is is still, unfortunately, something that divides us. It's still polarizing. Um, I think social media has even made it uh, more relevant to need to talk about it because 
we see all of these things in our social media feeds around race. People come to work, and if they want to be able to do their best work, if they're feeling unsafe, they feel that they don't have psychological safety, if somebody feels that they're, you know, driving while black, you know, living while black, even just walking while black, um, all of these things can create trauma. And there's a growing body of literature which speaks to race-based trauma. And they, uh, actually the um, behavioral scientists make a connection to race-based trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome, that it can um, behave in the same way. Many times, though, people don't even realize that they're experiencing race-based trauma. It's the anxiety. It's the fear. You know, will I be welcomed here? Even in the workplace, uh, what are my coworkers thinking um, about me? Um, If I'm wearing um, locks in my hair, we saw something recently where a coach or a referee, I guess it was, decided that this young man shouldn't be wearing locks at his wrestling match and was made 90 seconds before to cut them off. So what if I'm wearing locks in the workplace? What's the perception of me? And so I think the lack of cross-cultural understanding is very it's really high, and that's the kind of work that we do. We, we try to work with people to increase their knowledge and their capability to accept difference. You don't ever have to like locks. It's fine. But can you understand um, and help? And I can help you to understand why this might be a choice you know, for, for me. So I think it really is about recognizing that our workplaces are more diverse and that you're going to lose good talent if you're not able to create an environment where it's acceptable to talk about issues that are dividing us. And the reason for talking about those issues would be to bring us more together. We have been taught not to talk about these things, and therefore we don't know how. And so people will shut down, they will shy away from bringing up the the topics. And what I'm um, suggesting is that we need to give people the skills to have authentic and real dialogue about a subject that is still dividing um, our society. You mentioned sort of the idea that you really, if you're an employee, you're not going to check your race at the door, right? You never stop being black or, you know, a Latina if you mm-hmm. walk in the door of the right. workplace. And that experience of race carries into the workplace. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what it means to be able to bring your whole self to the table when you come to work. Um, Years ago, when I first started um, in this work, organizations explicitly did not invite people to bring their whole selves to work. They explicitly said, don't bring parts of you to work. Don't bring the emotion. You're just here to work. We don't care about any of that other, other stuff in terms of your identity. But I think today they recognize if it's a transgender person, if it's a, um, a gay person. And I mean, so there are lots of different identities that people have had to um, actually um, hide. And there's a phenomenon called covering. And so you, you cover who you really are. I kind of go along, you know, to get along. So what does that do? So I know when I was in the corporate world a number of years ago, what it did for me is that I was spending so much time thinking about what I had to suppress as part of my identity that I wasn't giving all of my time to thinking about how can I innovate for this company because I had to split my thought, my thinking around, okay, am I going to be accepted if I say this, if I look this way? And so I'm so busy thinking about that and what my identity brings to the table and are other people uncomfortable because I'm now I'm this black woman who's sitting at the table and they're 
and they're all white men. Other, other, all of the other people at the table are white men, and so are they uncomfortable, right? Uh, because they do look uncomfortable, and so, and that impacts my ability to do my best work because I, I, I'm. That's always going to be with me, and it's. I don't think it's realistic. People cannot take parts of their identity and like leave them. Uh, so I, and I think um, many organizations, progressive organizations, recognize that, and that's why many organizations are promoting having these conversations, whereas before they would shy away or actually discourage any kind of conversations around race. And I'd love to talk about the danger in ignoring those conversations or shying away from conversations about race and identity at work. Yeah, so it has to do with retention. It has to do with losing good talent. Um, I was working with a major professional services organization, a really big one. I won't name them, but a really big one. And this uh, young man, who's African-American young man, um, said that, he had come to work and he was um, upset that day because he had heard of another unarmed uh, young black man being killed. And so um, he wasn't, you know, totally on his game that day because that was weighing on him. So his boss said to him, you know, what's wrong? And he told her and he said he got nothing, like not even he got like no words, no nothing, like not like, I'm sorry, you know, is there anything I can do? Not not even the wrong thing to say would be, well, why does that you know, impact you. Apparently the boss said nothing, just kind of looked at him. And in all fairness, maybe she just didn't know what to say. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to provide the skills around what do you say when you, when that experience perhaps hasn't been your experience, when you perhaps haven't thought about it and you perhaps don't know how it's impacting somebody else. But the um, storyline here is that he left the company and, um, we don't think that that was the only reason he left the company, but we do think that that contributed to it because he didn't think that there was an environment where he was being totally valued and, and respected, understood. And he had a skill set that was transferable. And so he took it someplace else. I also wonder about how these issues impact employees and customers. So you're thinking, you know, employees, obviously retention is an issue. Like you said, you can transfer your work skills to another company where you feel more comfortable bringing your whole self to the table. But if you've got also customers who are coming into an environment or clients that are coming into that environment where people don't feel comfortable you know, bringing their full identity, that impacts you too, right, as the client or customer. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, I don't know if you're thinking about s- situations such as what happened at Starbucks, where the Starbucks employee, um, for whatever reason, felt a need to call the police on two men who were waiting for a, another business colleague. And so that employee was not culturally competent. Uh, maybe there was a fear. Maybe he or she had had an experience in their past. Um, and, and so again, I, I don't want us to continue to always punish people who make those kinds of mistakes. I think education is the key. Because if we continue to punish people who make a mistake, do the wrong thing, Others are going to shut down and say, well, I don't really know much about that either, or I would have been afraid about that too, so I'm not going to ask any questions. And so um, I think we lose the opportunity for the teaching moment. It's just sort of like, okay, they, did, they said that, wrong thing, fire them, bye, and then we don't have the discussion. So um, I got called in to work with a client um, who fired this woman. She was high up in HR. Uh, she was a white woman, and she wanted to. she was in a class, a diversity class, and she wanted to know why it was okay for her sons to walk around the house and use the N-word because they were um, rapping. They were, they were 
repeating rap music and they were singing along with rap music that used that said the n-word so rather than her saying the n-word said rather than saying the n-word she said the word she said it four times as she was trying to understand why it's okay in rap music for the n-word to be used but it's not okay for anybody else to say it so the african-americans in the session um, were very upset and she was really kind of clueless and said, well, it's in the song. And why, why can't I? I'm just saying, I just, I'm just asking why I can't say it. So she was fired. So then they bring me in <laughs> to fix it. Uh, so I probably wouldn't have fired her. I probably would have had a dialogue to, to do some education. This was a woman who had been with this organization for like 20 years. So the white employees were really upset that, they, that she got fired. The African-American employees, and I'm, star- I'm I don't know if all Africa, you know, we're like, she needed to be fired because, you know, she should know better. Well, we don't know what we don't know, and particularly around race, because we haven't talked about it. Yeah. It's not in our textbooks. Some of these things are not in our history books we, because we're ashamed of that history. So we don't talk about, we don't talk about that. Yeah. And you mentioned teachable moments. And, and you I think you started to talk about how that would look with you know, dialogue and education. Can you tell me what a, like a healthy teachable moment might look like? Yeah. So um, a healthy teachable moment might look like an what I call ouch and educate. So if I hear something that I know is truly offensive to black people, and somebody says that, rather than this righteous indignation, um, you need to go because you said that, let me say, ouch, that hurt. And the person on the other end, rather than saying, well, I didn't mean anything by it, you're just being too sensitive. That's not the response. They stop and they listen for why is that, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. I, a number of years ago, I was um, a member of the, of the Rotary Club in Rochester, New York. I lived in Rochester, New York. And they had a barbershop quartet. And the barbershop quartet sang Dixie at the meeting. I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, and my parents are Canadians. So it didn't really mean much to me because my mother would go around the house singing, oh, Canada. So some of the African-American members of the Rotary group went to the media and it was, became a big media thing. And they hired me to, you know, train people into why this was wrong. It wasn't what I was looking for. But the point, the point being that people were looking, well, what, what, you know, what, what did we do wrong? And so we can't expect all the time that people know what our triggers are and what hurts for us because they haven't had that experience. And so the teachable moment is the opportunity to authentically share and to not speak for all black people. So this is hurtful to me because these are the experiences that I've had. And so I think that's... um, the way that we can begin the teachable moments if we have an organizational culture that allows for ouch and educate, allows for people to, and to assume positive intent on the part of the other, to assume that the other did not mean to hurt me. They were not doing it uh, maliciously. They were doing it because they didn't know what they didn't know. Mary Francis has shed some light on what it looks like for an employee to be able to bring their complete self to work. And we know from this conversation and others we've had over this series that this really matters when it comes to productivity and healthy work environment that retains talent. 
compensation consulting firm Semler Brasi recently published a report providing a bit more context around why corporate leaders should care about these issues. We're going to take a bit of a break from chatting with Mary Francis to hear from Blair Jones at Semler Brasi. Blair is managing director at the firm, where she's been a compensation consultant across multiple industries since 1991. Blair, can you tell me a bit more about why corporate leaders should actually care about these talent issues? First, investors care about this topic and are asking for more on human capital risk. They're probing about how companies manage human capital in their shareholder outreach conversations. In the past, investors have wanted to know how companies were making the most of their physical assets, and now they want to know how they manage their human capital assets as well. So are executives getting the best returns on their investments in people? Large investors such as State Street and BlackRock have led the charge in calling on boards and management teams to more actively monitor their company's human capital. The SEC has also recently weighed in. In their proposed rule amendments to modernize disclosure, the SEC specifically called out providing a description of human capital resources to the extent they're material to understanding the company as a whole. But more importantly, focusing on human capital management issues like diversity and inclusion is just good business. Boards and management teams should have an interest in overseeing their company's human capital management strategy because of the long-term impact it can have on a company's success. Like investors, employees, potential employees, and consumers are looking for companies that stand out in human capital management. Therefore, companies need to be strong in these dimensions to compete and win with talent and customers. Strong human capital management also safeguards brand and public reputation. Given the high levels of media scrutiny, negative public perceptions around human capital issues can have a measurable impact on a company's brand and and ability to recruit and retain employees. The edge in today's business comes through heads, not just hands, so management of that resource becomes a mission-critical capability for boards and management teams that they can't ignore. Boards and management teams collaborating on these topics can help safeguard a company's reputation and drive long-term value creation. So clearly investors care about how companies handle talent and culture, and that certainly ties in with these conversations we've had around belonging and being able to bring your full self to the table, including even your race and identity. So let's jump back into our great interview with Mary Francis. There are a few more lessons that she shared with us. I'd love to also talk about some practical tips for being able to talk about race at work. Obviously, there are all these sorts of experiences that someone brings to the table when they're at work, but how how do you even open up and begin to have that conversation around race and be comfortable talking about your identity in the workplace? You know, this is a competency. This is something that um, you learn over time. If I want to learn how to play the piano, I don't just take one lesson. And if I want to learn how to play the piano and I've never played it, I don't start with uh, one of Mozart's more, you know, uh, difficult pieces. Right. So I think it's this is what we call it, what we call in our work at the Winters Group, a developmental journey. And so I've got to know where you are. I've got to know what kind of knowledge you already have. We use a tool called the Intercultural Development Inventory. And it's a tool that it's a psychometric tool, which means it's been reliability and validity tested across a number of different cultures. And it helps us to recognize how competent we are to actually 
a bridge effectively across difference. So it starts at denial. So at denial, I, I don't know anything about difference. I've never been around difference and I tend to avoid it or um, be disinterested. I just stay with my own kind. Only about 2.4% of the people who take the tool fall at denial. So now I've developed a little bit more and I've, I've now I'm exposed to some other culture and I usually at that point have culture shock and that takes me to polarization. Whoa, why did those people do that crazy thing different than I do that thing, right? And so that's, uh, that's the judgmental place of us and them. As I learned a little bit more, I saw, yeah, that was some crazy stuff, but people are just people. So I go to this place of called minimization. And at minimization, I just treat everybody the same. Minimization is the colorblind place, right? Because, hey, we're all people after all. So if I'm at minimization, which 68% of the people who take this normal distribution curve, 68% of the people who take the tool fall at minimization because we've taught people to minimize differences. If I am at that place of minimization, I don't think there's anything more I need to learn because all I have to do is treat everybody the way I want to be treated. Simple, easy peasy. And so that's why I think in this work, we don't get the uh, in-depth opportunity. Clients will call and say, can you do a two-hour session, you know, on diversity or on race? And, you know, it's, can you do a two-hour session and teach me to be a concert pianist? No, you cannot. And so I think that that's where we miss the mark. We think it's easy because we think all I have to do is treat everybody the way I want to be treated. And that's, that's what I do. And so therefore, I'm not a racist. Therefore, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good to go. So that's the middle stage along this continuum. The next stage is called acceptance. Acceptance does not mean agreement. Acceptance means that I accept that there are differences that make a difference. I accept that there are myriad worldviews and ways that people have experienced the world that are different from me. And I'm curious. So at polarization, that second stage, I'm judgmental about it. Mine is better than theirs. At polarization, it's on us and them, where I'm like, why do those crazy people do this, that, that kind of stuff? Well, they, they just need to do it the way we do it, right? Um, yeah, you know, if those black people would just, right, then everything would be okay. You know, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstrap. You know, so I haven't had that experience of now discrimination that, that's, that's um, subtle, right? But we know about the unconscious bias in terms of last names. My daughter is an electrical engineer by training. Her first name is Marisha. Her middle name is Nicole. When she was Marisha and, and she put on her resume that she was a member of the National Association of Black Engineers, she didn't get so many callbacks, even though in the world we say, gee, we need more women engineers. She's a Spelman Georgia Tech grad, so she's got her engineering degree from a good tech, good school, 3.2 grade point average. So it's not about the grades, right? It's about her name, black sounding name. So she started to say Nicole Winters, and she no longer put that she was a member of the National um, Black um, Engineers. And she got, oh, many, many more callbacks, right? And so I have the experience, you know, um, of that. But somebody who hasn't had that experience says, why don't you just go to a good school? Why don't you just get a good, a good education? And then the, the, the playing field, you know, is, is, uh, is level. That's that minimization stage. And we're all, you know, we're all the same. You know, it must be something that you're not doing right. Because I did it and look at what happened for me, right? And so um, I think that starting the education process, um, meeting people where they are, and that education process for us starts with self awareness and self-understanding, self-understanding of what my experience has been and how that experience is different from others. There's a video and it's, it's out on um, YouTube. Um, it's Randall Stevenson, who's the CEO of AT&T, and he's addressing 
um, all of the employee um, resource groups, the affinity groups, the black affinity group, the women affinity group, the Asian affinity group. Um, and he talks about an experience with his best friend who happens to be African-American. Randall Stevenson is white. And he talks about how for 30 years he'd known this guy, that they had done all sorts of things together. They shared um, you know, difficult times when one of you know, lost a son and all those kinds of things. But he heard his friend, his black friend, speak at a, um, he was giving a speech, the black friend was giving a speech, and he talked about what it was like being a black man in America, even though his friend is a, is a physician. And he talked about how when he ran in his neighborhood, he carried his ID because he was going to be stopped and all of these different things. But the point was that Randall Stevenson said, I never knew this about my friend. He said, I never knew that his experiences in life were different than mine. He said, I just assumed because he was highly educated and highly you know, regarded as a physician that his experiences were the same as mine. His access was the same as mine. And he said, I didn't know that. And so that's the point. We assume and we don't know. And so, so in terms of talking about these differences, I first have to recognize and acknowledge and be okay with the experiences that I've had. And then I can compare and contrast them to the experiences that others have had. So it's a journey. It's a process. And so you ask me, where do you start? We start by assessing. We start by recognizing. So what is my capability right now to be able to understand the complexities of difference? And this tool, the Intercultural Development Inventory, helps us to do that. So that's where I would start. And you you talked, too, about the idea that there are essentially prerequisites to have these conversations or at least have them mm-hmm. well, right? And mm-hmm. uh, this shouldn't necessarily be a town hall sort of discussion. Are there any other parameters that you can help set around um, what these conversations can Well, look you know, like it should? could be a one-on-one. It could be, you know, let's say it might be a leader and, and a direct report. Um, and this, perhaps the direct report wants to share with the leader some of the issues or concerns. And so if it's a, if it's a one-on-one, you know, that leader has to, again, be very, very self-aware and not and and recognize that just because it hasn't been your experience don't minimize you know someone someone else's experience the other thing that can happen is uh, you know the, this comparison that's done so somebody is talking about their experience um that they're having uh as a in a race-based situation and somebody else says well yeah you know i know from a generational perspective too you know uh, i'm a millennial and you know then and the baby boomers don't treat me like i ha-, you know and so not to d- diminish your experience across generations, but not to compare our experiences and to allow validation for each person's experience and not a comparison. Oh, I know how you feel because this happened to me. So that's a you know that's something that happens a lot when we're trying to have these conversations. And so you're not really listening because what you're doing is you're in your mind compare. Oh yeah yeah I know what that is about because I yeah you know. Don't assume that you know what it is about. We call it inclusive listening. And so there's active listening. There's all sorts of, you know, people have all sorts of books about listening. I think when there's a, a cultural overlay or race overlay, it's different. And it takes, it requires more. And so if you're trying to listen across that difference, I'm a white person, you're, you know, you're an African-American, it requires a deeper level. It requires you to be to be really listening and, and w- wondering what's going on in your head at the same time. Um, we don't encourage you to be listening so that you can respond because that's what oftentimes people are listening so that they can respond. But listen for those things that are that you're not understanding. 
listen for those things that d- don't sound right to you. You know, what that, how could that be? And, and listen to yourself to why am I thinking that? You know, why am I dismissing in my head? Why am I, you know, um, or thinking, well, I don't treat him that way, or I don't treat her that way, or I don't feel that way about her, right? And so you're still focusing on yourself rather than focusing on listening to really what the other person is saying. So while you're listening, you should be uh, working on questions that you're going to ask to go deeper in your understanding. Why? Can you tell me more about that? Can you give me an example of that? Right. And I think, you know, saying, oh, I understand how you feel. That's going to shut the other person down because they're probably thinking, no, you really don't understand how I feel or I really don't think you understand how I feel. Maybe let's talk to you about a, a bit about how a business leader can actually go about trying to foster an environment where this um, sharing and this helpful listening can actually happen. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, re- a leader who under who recognizes that each person on his or her team is different. So I don't want to stereotype that, oh, if you have African-Americans on your team, this is what you should do, right? Because everybody is different. So I think building trust and building a relationship with every person on the team. And that I was uh, with uh, a client uh, just recently, and one of the leaders said, that's hard work. Because, you know, throughout the course of the day, you're supposed to be getting the work done. And now you're telling me I've got to build a relationship with everybody. Um, You know, taking different people to lunch and and just listening and hearing, you know, their stories and their experiences and then reflecting. We we, um, encourage uh, in our work a lot of self-reflection. So on the part of the leader, a lot of self. How did that land for me? And, you know, why did it land that way? So leaders are often, particularly in Western culture, we expect leaders to be able to give answers immediately, right? Because leaders are all-knowing, right? And so they're supposed to have the answer. But what in this work, we're recommending that we pause and that we reflect and we don't assume that we know what what the answer is. And so getting to know each person on the team, on the leader's leader's team, recognizing that there might be some gender differences, some racial differences, not necessarily, again, I don't want to stereotype, but, but if you don't have in your toolkit as a leader an understanding of how cultures differ, then you can't even go there as a possibility. So we don't want folks to immediately go there. Oh, there's the black woman. So I've, let me see, what did I learn about black women, right? Um, so that's not what we're, we're recommending, but we are saying to recognize that there is a possibility that her experience as an African-American woman could be shaping her worldview. And that could be a worldview that you don't have enough experience to understand. That's one possibility. So it's like anything else, when you're looking at what's the root cause of what might be going on in an organization, you're going to look at different um, possibilities. And what we're saying for a leader is this is one possibility, a cultural difference. You can't even put that in your toolkit if you have no background, if you have no education around that. I mentioned earlier that um, I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, and my parents are Canadians. That gives me a different worldview than someone who uh, looks like me, uh, but was is a millennial and grew up in Selma, Alabama. We probably have very different, you know, different worldviews. So the intersectionality, and, and I think that's, again, where the self-awareness is so key, because I have to understand what aspects of my identity 
are showing up for me, are important for me. Because sometimes we take that for granted as, as an individual, right? We do an exercise in some of our sessions. We call it our cultural identity. And we ask people to share four aspects of their identity that are important to them and that have shaped their worldview. People have a hard time doing it. When I do, when I, and we model it. So when I model it in a session, I'll say, I'm an African-American woman. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a mother and I'm an entrepreneur. And those, those are four things. It could be 144 things, but I will say to people, we only have a couple of hours in this session, so I'm asking you to pick four of those things which are important. And then which one is most important in your identity? Prioritize the four. People have trouble prioritizing the four. And we find that people in the, in the dominant group, in the majority group, oftentimes will not mention race as one of their primary identity markers because for them, race is not important. Um, I'd love to talk to you about how we can actually have conversations that help heal in the workplace. I mean, it's one thing, right, to share your experience and for folks to listen. Do you think we're at the point where we can actually have conversations that lead toward healing in the workplace? We talk to clients about this being a journey. You know, leadership development, you don't ever stop developing leaders. They're, they're constantly going to some kind of opportunity to enhance their capability as a leader. This is the same kind of thing. It's cross-cultural understanding education, and it should be ongoing. And it doesn't all happen in a classroom. We have what we call the four E's. In order to um, be able to more effectively bridge across difference, you have to have exposure to difference. So we have something called who's in my world. And if everybody in your world is your same identity, then you're not learning about that. The next E is, ex is experience. So I could have exposure. The differences could be all around me, but that doesn't mean that I'm having meaningful conversations or experiences across difference. The third E is education. So there is room for formal education. Museums, documentaries, courses, training in organizations, that's education. And that leads to the fourth E, which is empathy. So we're not going to get there. And I call it actually reciprocal empathy because I have to be able to empathize with the dominant group as well. Because we often hear uh, from the dominant group, well, it's not my fault. I'm not responsible for what, you know, my ancestors did. And, you know, we've got to recognize that there is a lot of shame and, you know, sort of blaming, go you know, uh, going on. Um, and we need to get you know, get beyond that. Um, so I can't have empathy if I don't understand, if I haven't done some deep work around really trying to put myself in your shoes. How can we tell if our companies are just giving us lip service or, you know, trying to make some sort of PR stunt out of diversity work or, you know, specifically trying to make the company look like it's doing well on, on race um, issues? How do we know we can get beyond lip service, basically? So we definitely have to have the CEO as not only someone who is sort of the sponsor, but we have to have them engaged on a regular basis. I can be committed. I sign all of the things and I pay the bills, I pay the bills, pay the salary of the chief diversity and inclusion officer. And, you know, many of them make a lot of money, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's that there's real change. And so being engaged means that you roll up your sleeves as well, and you're in the trenches. You're you're actually meeting with um, employees of color. You're actually taking the time to do the understanding. I was, I was working with a senior team uh, last year, and the CEO said, "I didn't get the Black Lives Matter thing," and he was pretty much at minimization. So minimization would be all lives matter, right? And he said, I talked with three African-American mothers who work for me, 
And he said, it took a while. He said, but I finally got it. He said, because it just wasn't my experience. He said, for if my son was stopped by the police, I would say, hallelujah, yes, because he's probably doing something wrong and the police are going to straighten him out and everything's going to be fine. He said, I just couldn't get why that wouldn't be, you know, the, the same. For me, as somebody who's African-American, I can't get why I can't get it. But I have to try to understand why that wouldn't even connect for him. So as a CEO, he took the time, right, um, you know, to actually, you know, actually do that. So number one, it's the engagement of senior leaders. I think it is weeding out those leaders who are not willing to go deep in this and say, you're not going to be on my team, right, if that's not going to happen. I think it is about seeing this as being a part of the organization's DNA and not a program and not a training course. So this becomes everything that we do. So I think by setting up um, the structures internally that recognize, if you have a survey that says your people of color are saying they're not feeling that they're having the same opportunities. The bottom line is to fix it, and then it's to dig deep. You've got to dig really, really deep. So let me go to Department A. What's going on in Department A, right? Why didn't uh, Maurice get that promotion that Maurice thought he should have had? What's going on there? And so I think that that's what really is needed to go beyond lip service is that, and you're willing to be in it for the long haul. I also love the point you made about folks in the C-suite getting outside their their offices even and going and actually meeting and socializing with some of these folks who may look a little bit different than they do. I was at a conference recently and they actually gave some statistics about you know individuals in the C-suite and whom they'd interacted with below the C-suite and they broke this up by gender and race and of course the the group that fewer C-suite folks had actually interacted with were black women. So even thinking about who you as a leader in a company are meeting is so critical, right, to even understanding who your talent actually is in a firm. Right. And I think part of the reason that we don't see that interaction is because the senior leaders probably do have some fear. I don't know what to say. We don't have anything in common, um, you know, that that type of thing. It's easier for me to talk to, you know, a young white guy who looks like me, right? Looks like my son, right? Could be, or even a young white woman. Looks like my daughter, right? I can mentor her, right? This has to be embedded and it has to become a part of the organizational, you know, DNA. This is This is who we are about. What's the business case for that is that if we're looking at making this a better world for everybody, everybody has to make a contribution to that. So if I'm big business, if I'm big bucks business, I've got the power to do that. I've got the power to make a difference. And it it is my obligation because of the employees who work for me, the generations that are coming behind me. And if I want people to buy whatever I'm selling, you know, if you want to get to the real nitty gritty of, and some people listening to this will probably say, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that we know from studies that women buy from organizations that have said, you know, we, we focus on women. LGBTQ people buy from organizations that, have, that show that they are demonstrating that. And so as people become more affluent and have more discretionary income, they're going to go to those organizations that, that um, you know, that make a difference. 
That's all for this episode. I'm excited to announce that starting October 3rd, we'll be diving into a new series of conversations focused on the future of work. But next up, in honor of our big Global Board Leaders Summit later this month in Washington, D.C., we're looking back at some of our favorite moments in innovation, culture, and diversity from summits past. Purpose-driven companies that take this seriously are routinely as much as twice as productive as their more conventional rivals. We can build firms that are meaning-driven, creative, innovative, know they're changing the world, and still deliver lots and lots of shareholder value. That's next time on Future Fluency. For guest bios, more resources, and a link to this episode's transcript, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org slash podcast. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song was composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.